In North America, the hoofed mammals there were beginning to establish larger and larger sizes, and they in particular adapted their bodies to the prairies in remarkable ways. In general, hoofed mammals lengthened their legs and thinned them into sturdy yet spindly structures. Their feet changed too, with more toes being lost until just one or two remained, and their hooves became more prominent, and their teeth changed into high crowns that continuously grew in life. For example, the horses switched from forests to grasslands and grew bigger. To run faster, they had increased the size of their middle toes and reduced those flanking them. With all the weight now being supported on one hoofed toe, they could gain traction as they pushed through the fields and run much faster than they ever could before. Camels, too, grew larger and reduced their toes, till the foot was reduced to a double-toed padded sole. Some were remarkably fast animals, while others grew so big that they could feast from treetops and look over all their neighbors. These camels, including Epicamelus, resembled giraffes with elongated necks and long, thin limbs. In contrast, deer remained mostly woodland animals and had already begun to develop antlers, though many species also sported sharp canines for fighting rivals. Joining the North American fauna were the pronghorns, who were much more diverse than today, represented by many species with branched, pointed, and curly horns. Predatory mammals, too, changed to suit the grasslands. The nimravids were still present, but now they were in decline, being replaced by the dogs who had grown into much larger hunters on the plains. In parallel with herbivores, carnivores started lengthening their legs and traded their climbing feet for compressed running feet with pads on their ends. They supported their weight on their toes instead of the soles of their feet. In response to the rise of pursuit predators, grassland herbivores not only began to run faster, groups began to coalesce into herds for protection. Even with this, the predators responded, with some forming packs that worked together to single out prey and take them down. Sea levels began to drop around 18 million years ago, as Antarctica's ice sheet returned and began to engulf the continent. Grand forests developed in the northern hemisphere, where the gymnosperms would outdo the angiosperms and radiate into new species of pine, spruce, and fir. The drop in sea levels allowed new land bridges to form, with the one between North America and Eurasia growing in size to become the region of Beringia. Now that Africa and Asia had collided together, the falling sea levels permitted the creation of the Arabian Peninsula, meaning that Africa was no longer an island continent. These changes in geography facilitated many mass migrations of animal life across the continents, allowing more faunas to be displaced and setting up the primary distributions of animal groups today. The strange panoply of African mammals, the Afrotheres, were now free to expand to other regions. The Proboscideans left Africa, and the Macedons were established on Eurasia and North America. Related to the Macedons were the Gomphotheres that evolved in Eurasia. These large mammals had modified their lower jaws into flattened spoons and shovels, tipped at the ends with blunt and flattened teeth that would have helped them scrape tree bark and dig up roots. These shared the grasslands and woods of Europe and Asia with a host of different species. Entering Africa from Eurasia was the motherlode of new placental groups, including dogs, cats, pigs, and rhinos. Two new groups of artiodactyls evolved in Eurasia during the Miocene and also made ventures into Africa. The first of these were the giraffids, which today is represented by a few species of long-necked spotted giraffes and the elusive forest-dwelling okapi. In their youth, however, they were a varied bunch, with many deer and antelope-like forms. The other was the bovids, the group that includes cattle, sheep, goats, and antelope. They sport horns atop their heads that are sheathed by keratin, the same substance as our hair and fingernails, and these organs continuously grow throughout their lives. The earliest bovids, incidentally, resembled small antelopes, 
and it was only later that the burly and strong buffaloes and cattle evolved. Also developing in Eurasia were the cats, who had now diversified into a number of different groups, including the panthers, or big cats, the lynxes, the pumas and cheetahs, and the wildcats. They too entered Africa, as well as North America. So, in essence, most of the animals that define Africa, the giraffe, the black rhinoceros, the cape buffalo, the gazelle, the wild dog, and the lion, are relative newcomers in the age of mammals. South America, still, was an island continent, and its fauna continued to flourish in the Pampa, the oldest grasslands in the world. There were some new faces, however. The other groups of Xenarthrans, the sloths and anteaters, were now on the scene, with the former feasting on the leaves of trees and shrubs, while the latter adapted their mouths and tongues towards the consumption of termites. The native hoofed mammals had grown in size and diversity, and they came to resemble more familiar mammals overseas, like hippos, rhinos, antelope, horses, and rabbits. Some relatives of the marsupials, like the saber-toothed thylacus smilus and the dog-like boar hyena, became great predators in their ecosystems. Sharing their hunting grounds were the descendants of those long-legged, running, caryomiform birds. Called forhosrachids, their heads grew in size and their bills were sharpened at their tips. They could reach over nine feet tall, delivering sharp kicks to their prey and grabbing small mammals in their jaws to shake them to death. There were giant birds in the air as well, including Argentavis, a relative of condors and turkey vultures but with a 23-foot wingspan. Like their living relatives, this bird would have probably been a scavenger as well. Sahul's fossil record becomes much better during the Miocene, and we're now able to get a good look at some of the animals that lived there. All of the modern marsupial groups were present, including the wombats, possums, dasaires, and kangaroos. Like South America, Sahul hosted a collection of large flightless birds called dromonornithids, though these were not predators but herbivores. They appear to have been related to modern waterfowl, like ducks, and you could picture these enormous birds walking along as their trails of young scurry behind them. There were other flightless birds there too, early emus and cassowaries, the later sporting a head crest and sharp claws on their toes. Alongside a number of snakes and monitor lizards are the Mikasukine crocodiles, who were semi-aquatic hunters but seem to have been competent on dry land. In the oceans, marine life was settling into more modern positions. Coral reefs grew in the warmer waters near the equator, and early cuttlefish patrolled the reefs in search of fish. In the more open oceans, the toothed whales had grown into a number of distinct lineages, including the sperm whales, the dolphins, and the first members of the narwhal family. Sharks and rays were diversifying too, with the earliest manta rays and basking sharks switching to a planktonic, filter-feeding lifestyle, of which the whale sharks had partaken of in the Oligocene. Among the filter feeders were grand marine predators. Representatives of the sharks are seen in the evolution of Megalodon, which has been estimated to have grown 52 feet in length. It had enormous teeth that blind jaws that could open six and a half feet wide. Megalodon sharks are known to have gone after whales because some remains of their prey show teeth embedded in their vertebrae. Alongside the sharks were giant sperm whales like Leviathan, with powerful jaws lined with curved teeth over a foot long. The modern groups of pinnipeds were now well established in the seas, including the walruses, who started out with small canines and only later grew them out as long tusks. The end of the Miocene is capped with a rather extraordinary event that unfolded between 6 million and 5.3 million years ago. While the Mediterranean Sea had been in place since the beginning of this epoch, global sea levels were dropping as Antarctica's ice sheet was growing. This was combined with the continuing movement of Africa into Europe, which closed off the Strait of Gibraltar between modern-day Iberia and Morocco. Because of the nature of the Mediterranean, where the surrounding islands were very dry places, the sea began to evaporate rapidly. Over periods of a few thousand years, 
the Grand Lake lowered more and more until finally, around 5.6 million years ago, the entire Mediterranean had dried into a basin dotted with small saltine lakes. It wouldn't be until 5.3 million years ago that the Strait of Gibraltar opened up again, and the Atlantic poured back into the Mediterranean in a flooding event that has been estimated by some to have been torrential. The Pliocene Epoch ends the Neogene period as a relatively short span of time, 5.3 million to 2.58 million years ago. Grasslands still dominated much of the world, while the temperate and tropical forests remained in some of the warmer regions. Changing ocean circulation promoted a brief period of warming during this time, and their stirring of undersea currents encouraged marine communities to experience yet another period of diversity. New islands emerged in the Pacific, with Easter Island, Tahiti, and the Society Islands developing around 4.5 million years ago, and the Galapagos Islands emerging through volcanic activity by 3 million years ago. Sahul was now in its present-day location, with the lands that would become New Guinea bordering Southeast Asia. After being separated since the Cretaceous period, the two continents of the Americas had finally connected together through the Isthmus of Panama, which formed 3 million to 2.7 million years ago. The ramifications of this geologic event would forever change the fauna of North and South America. Prior to the joining of the continents, North America was home to a wide range of placental mammals, including horses, camels, dogs, bears, raccoons, and mustelids, all of which evolved there millions of years ago. Mastodons and gompatheres had arrived there from Asia in the Miocene, adding sub-megafauna to the mix. South America had a much more unique fauna, full of armadillos, anteaters, sloths, marsupials, caviamorphrodents, native hoofed mammals, and giant flightless birds. Once the Isthmus of Panama was established, the animals on these two continents began to migrate in opposite directions and populate the new territory, in an event that paleontologists have dubbed the Great American Interchange. Sloths and armadillos moved into North America, including some enormous forms like the ground sloths. Marsupials finally returned there, of which one species, the opossum, survives today. Some of the South American caviomorphs made it into North America too, but like the marsupials, only one held out, the porcupine. In contrast, it was the mammals from the northern continent that really disrupted South America. For the first time, bears, dogs, cats, raccoons, deer, camels, horses, and proboscideans entered that land. There was a period of competition between these immigrants and the already present carnivores and herbivores, but in the end, the predatory marsupials, giant running birds, and native hoof mammals were pushed into extinction. By the Pliocene, most of the horses had died out, leaving one lineage left that had finally lost all of its digits save for their middle toe, which had now fully formed into a thick hoof. They ran freely through the grasslands of North and South America, raising on the tough, fibrous grasses with their specialized high-crowned teeth. Rhinos had pretty much died out in North America, only surviving through the species that escaped over Beringia into Eurasia and Africa. Camels still roamed the Americas, including some giant species, but they were also now surviving in fewer numbers. Some had managed to leave over Beringia, but many found a comfortable home in South America, particularly near the Andes Mountains. Deer, cattle, sheep, and goats had finally entered North America from Eurasia, and they were now very recognizable, with their antlers and horns. The ancestors of the modern dog species, including the first foxes and wolves, had managed to spread all across the Americas, Eurasia, and Africa. And the bears had grown to immense sizes and became the omnivores we know today. Mustelids, the weasel family, also had a great spread between the Americas and Eurasia, and the modern members of the group, the otters, badgers, weasels, and minks, were on the scene. From among the cats had emerged one particular lineage of hunters, the Macarodonts, or the true saber-toothed cats. Since the saber-toothed adaptation had evolved several times among mammals, it really is a curious question as to how it was used. 
The teeth would have been strong but fragile, and any contact with hard surfaces like bone would see them cracked. So it seems highly likely that saber-toothed predators use their teeth to pierce the windpipes and underbellies of their prey. Africa's fauna underwent a similar situation in the Americas. When the great herds and packs of hoofed mammals and carnivores had entered the continent, there was a slight displacement among some of the native Afrotheres. The Hyraxes, for example, had been the dominant herbivores prior to the foraging of the Arabian Peninsula, but by the end of the Pliocene they had been outcompeted by the antelopes, giraffes, bovids, and rhinos. Nearly all of them went extinct, save for one lineage who carries on their legacy today as small, rabbit-like animals. The other Afrotheres had escaped competition by having already occupied specific niches, including the aardvark, which is a nocturnal, burrowing animal that feasts on termites. Australia's ecosystems were undergoing a slight change as grasslands finally began to spread there and replace the tropical forests of old. Some of the marsupials adapted well to this, like the kangaroos and wallabies, who lengthened their legs and feet and started hopping instead of running. At the end of the Pliocene, the Earth's climate cooled again, but this time it was so great that the first glaciers formed in the Arctic region. The growth of the ice sheets promoted the development of the tundra, which was bordered by the boreal forests and conifers. Animal life responded to these changes, and many species became adapted to the tundra environment, including deer, bovids, bears, cats, and rabbits. Why was this cooling so dramatic? Throughout the Earth's history, the planet undergoes a shift in its orbit every 100,000 years or so. This shifts the direction of the Earth's axial tilt and affects the seasonality of the planet towards cooler or warmer conditions. However, this did not previously change the Earth in such a way as to encourage glacial growth like this, for as we've seen, there have only been a few ice ages in the entire lifespan of the Earth so far. Therefore, it seems highly likely that this shift, or Milankovitch cycle, was exacerbated by the events occurring on the Earth's surface. The great rise of mountains like the Alps and the Himalayas had changed the circulation of air currents, and the collision of continents had modified the direction of the ocean currents. The circumstances were just right for an extreme ice age to occur, and occur it did. The beginning of the most familiar ice age marked the closing of both the Pliocene epoch and its encompassing period, the Neogene. And with that, we must lay anchor to our river journey. And we must conclude our story of life on Earth. For the next episode, we'll need to backtrack a bit, because I purposely neglected to explain the evolution of one particular group of mammals, the primates. We explore their history, and then finally begin cataloging the evolution of the hominins, the lineage to which the ancestors of all humanity belong. That's in this episode of On the River of History. If you enjoyed listening in and are interested in hearing more, you can visit my new website at www.podcasts.com. Just search for On the River of History. This podcast is also available on iTunes. Just search for it by name. A transcript of today's episode is available for the hearing impaired or for those who just want to read along. The link is in the description. And if you like what I do, you're welcome to stop by my Twitter, at KillDearCheer. And you can support this podcast by becoming a patron at www.patreon.com forward slash jtermel. Any and all donations are greatly appreciated and will help continue this podcast. Thank you all for listening, and never forget, the story of the world is your story too.